6 a.m. on the West Coast. 9 a.m. on the East Coast of America. 2 p.m. in London. 7.30 in Mumbai, India. 11 p.m. in Kyoto, Japan. And in Malaysia, once again, it's 1984. I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants. I was pants, pants, like I'm Joyzy, or wherever. <laughs> yeah, hello, I'm sorry, I just got to do one little quick bit of adjustment here. I don't know why that always happens, but there we go. You get to see the top of my laptop screen. Oh, wait, it did it again. What the hell? All right, okay, fine, be that way. I don't know. We'll get it straightened out one of these days. Eh, let's dump that. There we go. Hi. Oh, hello. Hi. Welcome in. Hello, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, uh, Twitch.tv, and Rumble.com slash Sheldon. Check us out over there. Please subscribe. It's all free. Free. Subscribe, follow, share, like, whatever it is. Hit the button. Hit the button. Hit the button. Uh, also, hello and welcome in to all of our podcast listeners. Uh, we are a podcast. The audio part of our show is a podcast. And uh, we're available on all the podcast platforms, wherever. Wherever you listen to podcasts. Spotify, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public. We're all over the place. And uh, we've got great listeners uh, to our podcast who are from, let's see, the U.S. is big. Malaysia, of course, right up there in the top three. India, doing great on uh, Geo7. So thank you to Geo7 and all of our Indian uh, listeners. Uh, we appreciate that over there. Uh, New Zealand, Australia, U.K., around the, around the planet, which is really nice. Nice to have you as a part of the I'm Not Wearing Pants family. Uh, we got a weird collection of crap tonight, as usual, that we're going to talk about. Uh, we don't do anything much controversial on this show, so if you're looking for controversy, uh, not the show for you. Uh, occasionally, we'll cover something that just kind of ticks me off, the news of the day. Um, I, mostly, I, I just don't even want to get into it because it's, eh, you know, it's not worth it. Besides... I want to provide a space where you can just kind of get away from it for an hour, three times a week. We're on Monday, Wednesdays, and Saturdays, 10 o'clock Malaysian time. But I'm really just looking to provide you with an alternative to ultra-conservative, ultra-liberal, whatever moronic babble junk that's out there. And there is a ton of it. So we just try and cover the stuff that Nobody else is talking about the fun stuff, the weird stuff, occasionally something controversial. And no matter what, in the beginning of our show, we always do this. Miko update. Me, 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 Co update. If you don't know or if you're new to the show, Miko is our Shiba Inu dog. And uh, she is... Uh, she is my life. <laughs> she is today pooped with a capital oopt. 
We went this morning to Sri Bintang Hill here in Malaysia, and this is a picture of her on our hike up this hill. We got together with a bunch of other Shiba Inu owners, including you've seen before on our update, uh, Nico, and uh, we hiked up this hill, mountain, in this jungle. There were monkeys, there were bugs, there was mud, there was some really beautiful uh, uh, mountain streams. And uh, some of the places just went like, like that, like a huge, it not, you know, it was level, then it would go up and level and go up and, uh, okay, this old man made it almost to the top. I just be, look, I'm always honest with you. I didn't make it the whole way to the top. I got about two thirds of the way to the top. And when I realized I have to save some energy because I also have to get back down again, I decided to let those guys go on and I went back down the mountain. But, you know, look, I'm out of shape. I don't exercise. The only exercise I get every night is taking Miko for a walk for maybe a couple of kilometers. But, um, but she did great. She had the time of her life. Let me just scroll through a few of these uh, the pictures and videos here. There she is. Uh, they've got a few of these places here you can see where you can kind of, you can see the, uh, the, the sites. Uh, check this out. See where there's like this rock formation? And uh, you, can, uh, you can check it out. There's Miko. There's Nico. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the other Shiba Inu that was there. But uh, when we, there's, there she is. When we came back down the hill, there were another group of Shiba Inus, like three other Shibas uh, there. So it was definitely Shiba Inu Day. Here's a, uh, a quick video. Let me just uh, mute. The, I don't think you can hear it anyway. So there's the, uh, there's the three of them. Miko in the background there. Nico and uh, the other... The other Sheba, who was a female and a bit shy, but she opened up after a while. She's very cute. She's adorable. <laughs> They're so cute. And uh, yeah, there's the old man. There's me, again, not wearing pants. Uh, this was the area where they had this little, very, very little tiny mountain stream. Um, here we are going up. You see, you can just see a little bit there where this, uh, this, this is a level spot. And then it uh, it goes like that for a while. A very cool area. Uh, some more shots. This, this it was such a great time. We had it absolute. There, look at that. Look at that view. Fantastic. And uh, there we are. There's the whole group. This is the group of us that went up the hill. <laughs> and there she is. Wow. Yeah. So, like I said. She's pooped. We also went for a walk tonight, and uh, we had a thunderstorm moving in, so we had to cut it a little short. But um, Miko is laying down on the living room floor right now going like, I'm dead. Don't bother me anymore. <laughs> She's doing great, though, and uh, good to have her back at it. <laughs> My goodness. All right, what else have we got? Oh, some very important news some very cool news. You've got to check this out. Take a look at this picture. This monk from Tibet 
incredible story that appeared on, on Facebook. Let me read this to you. A Tibetan monk has been discovered in the mountains of Nepal. He is considered the oldest known person in the world. It turns out he is 201 years old. Wow. He is in a deep state, a trance state or meditation called Takatet. When he was first discovered in a mountain cave, they actually thought he was a mummy. However, scientists examining what they thought was a mummy discovered that he actually had vital signs and he was alive. Among his things, his possessions, they found a piece of paper that said, Stop believing all the bullcrap you read on Facebook. <laughs> yes! The story is completely made up. <laughs> oh, man. I saw that. I had to share it tonight. <laughs> exactly right. Stop believing all the crap you find on Facebook. <laughs> and a lot of other sites, too. Um, <laughs> what did I tell you? We do weird stuff on this show, right? So get used to it. All right. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and follow and share and do all that stuff. Hit all them buttons down there if you like the show. Or even if you don't like the show, share it anyway. Um, hey, I asked this question a couple of streams ago, and somebody sent me this article. It's in the show notes tonight. You can check it out and read the whole article yourself if you want. But it has to do with one specific area because it's from the Dallas Morning News. But what it was was, you know, with all the vaccines and all the booster shots and not to mention the normal syringes that get used when we're not in a pandemic around the world. What happens to all these syringes? There are hundreds and hundreds of millions of these syringes which, as far as I know, you can't reuse them. Well, this is an article in the Dallas Morning News I found. It's from not too long ago, and it, it covers exactly that topic. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, syringes are classified as sharps, objects that can obviously pierce the skin. Vaccine administrators in Texas, including pharmacies, must comply with requirements set by the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. Now, I would assume most states have these sort of, I mean, whatever they call them, would have the same kind of thing. I would hope most countries have this sort of thing. Here in Malaysia, I have no idea what the regulations are, but medical waste disposal requirements vary from state to state, and Walgreens complies with all federal, state, local requirements, according to a spokesman for Walgreens. Um, the state commission classifies all COVID-19 medical waste as regulated medical waste. All used sharps placed in a container approved by the US FDA. And once the containers are three quarters full, they're sealed with duct tape and labeled as non-recyclable. Those are now taken to the authorized medical waste processing facilities, 
by the vaccine sites themselves or through the U.S. Postal Service, that's kind of scary, or a registered medical waste transporter. Texas alone has 15 of these processing plants that are authorized by the commission. Uh, In Dallas County, uh, it's in Garland, and they use an autoclave, which kills pathogens with high-pressure steam to disinfect the waste, and then they dispose of it. They do the final disposal. After the waste is disinfected, compacted, sent to a landfill or a waste-to-energy plant. Well, that's kind of sad and scary, but at least for the most part, it looks like uh, we're at least uh, paying attention to what we're doing with our, with our sharps, our highly infectious sharps. So that answers the question that we brought up. What is happening to all those, uh, to all those things we put in our veins? And speaking of veins, yes, that is a very bad attempt at a segue. Look at this. You know what that is? When I first saw this picture, I'm sorry, if you're listening to the podcast, check out our video of our show over at rumble.com, Jay Sheldon, or YouTube, Facebook, wherever, twitch.tv. This is a visual, but you got to check this out. This is a tree that got hit by lightning, and it exposed all of the tree's vascular system. Nature is absolutely amazing. The tree's vascular system is what carries the water and minerals from the roots back up through the trunk of the tree and out to the limbs and the leaves. Photosynthesized food back down the tree. Uh, Trees have no muscles or nervous systems, of course, so all of the movement is powered by turgor pressure, which is controlled by stomata in the leaves that open and close as needed. But because of this lightning strike, look at the, I have look. I've been doing bonsai since I was like 15 years old, so I know a lot about trees. You have to, if you're going to grow, uh, grow a little miniature tree in a pot, you have to know about the biology and care of trees. But this is absolutely amazing. This exposed every single one of this vascular system of this tree. That is an incredible, incredible photograph. Please, if you're listening on the podcast, I can't encourage you enough. If nothing else, go check out our our video to see the picture from this. The post, by the way, I believe I put that in the the show notes, so you can click and look directly at it. Just go down into the show notes and find the link uh, to this uh, Facebook photo. It is absolutely amazing. Absolutely incredible. Wow. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, so if uh, if you're into mythology, I've got a quick one for you. I found this, and <laughs> this is true, but it turns out it's a little weird. Uh, if you think mythology is boring, remember this. Cherberus, who is the hellhound, and the guard dog of the underworld comes from the root Indo-European word kerberos, which evolved into the Greek word kerberos, which was changed to siberus 
or Chiburus or Cherburus, when it went from Greek to Latin. But here's the kick. Cherberos means spotted. So, Hades, the Lord of the Dead, literally named his pet dog Spot. <laughs> Seriously. That's where the word came from, and that's what Cherberus means. It means spotted. So, the hellhound guard dog of hell, his name was technically Spot. Here's Spot. Come here, Spot. <laughs> oh, man. Ah, yeah. Okay. For some reason, I don't know why, we are only maybe four or five weeks away from Christmas. What? Probably four and a half weeks, if that. Less than four and a half. I think, yeah, just about four weeks away from Christmas. Wow. That is scary. Um, anyway, for some reason, the next three or four things I'm going to share with you before we get into our book are Christmas related. This isn't our Christmas special. We'll likely do one. But uh, for some reason, I managed to find a bunch of weird stuff about Christmas. So that's all right. Um, by the way, our book will be coming up, uh, The Christmas Carol. We're reading that little piece of a chapter at a time until we head towards uh, directly into Christmas. Um, but this was posted as a public post from David Hood. The link is in the show notes because I encourage you to share this. It is such a wonderful story. There's no real visual that goes along with this. So I'll just keep the camera on me and you can close your eyes and just listen if you want. <laughs> Attention to all parents who need to tell the truth about Santa. The son says, Dad, I think I'm old enough now. Is there a Santa Claus? And the dad says, okay, I agree you're old enough, but before I tell you, I have a question for you. You see, the truth is a dangerous gift because once you know something, you can't unknow it. Once you know the truth about Santa Claus, you will never again understand and relate to him as you do now. So my question is, are you sure you want to know? There's a brief pause, and the son says, Yes, I want to know. And the dad says, Okay, I'll tell you. Yes, there is a Santa Claus. The son says, Really? And dad replies, Yes, really. But he's not an old man with a beard and a red suit. That's just what we tell kids. You see, kids are too young to understand the true nature of Santa Claus. So we explain it to them in a way that they can understand. The truth about Santa Claus is that he's not a person at all. He's an idea. Think of all those presents Santa gave you over the years. I actually bought those myself. I watched you open them. And it didn't bother me that you didn't thank me. Of course not. In fact, it gave me the greatest pleasure. You see, Santa Claus is the idea of giving 
for the sake of giving, without thought of thanks or acknowledgement. And when I saw that woman collapse on the subway last week and called for help, I knew she'd never known that it was me that summoned the ambulance. I was being Santa Claus when I did that. So now that you know, son, you're part of it. You have to be Santa Claus too now. That means you can never tell a young kid the secret. And you have to help us select Santa's presents for them. And most important of all, you have to look for opportunities to help people. Got it? Help each other this Christmas and all throughout the year. And be kind. That is powerful. That's brilliant. I love that. And I just had to share it. There is a link to the post, I believe, in our show notes tonight. So please do, uh, do check that out. All right. Speaking of Christmas, see, I can say that for every one of these next stories because it's all speaking of Christmas. I will warn you, if you're not into crabs, you might want to look away from the screen right now because it's that time of year on Christmas Island. Yes. The red crabs, this is from BBC News. There's a link in the show notes are all over. They cover Christmas Island. You may have seen this before, but um, look at this. This amazing video of the roads have been closed to protect the crabs as they journey from the mountains through the jungles and down to the sea. There you see the, the sign for the crab migration. And here somebody's taken some uh, <laughs> crab knocked over the phone. They were doing it. it. They cover the island in Western Australia every year as they do this migration. Starts with the first rainfall of the wet season. And these bright red, known as red crabs, obviously, are literally just cover everything. Look at this. Climbing up this wall of some sort. They are everywhere. Check that out. Look at that. Again, if you're not into crabs, it's going to kind of freak you out, but yeah, there you go. Weird. Uh, all right. And once again, speaking of Christmas, <laughs> what did I tell you? I told you it's not even Thanksgiving yet. And I'm talking about Christmas. Look at this. Look at this. Pinus Lambertiana a sugar pine has the longest cone of any conifer. Look, look at this. This some looks like fairly normal sized guy. This, they can grow up to 22 inches long native to North America. I've never seen or heard of this before. Sugar pine remains the tallest of all pine tree species reaching a height of 250 feet or more. Known as the king of the pines, this majestic evergreen can survive for up to 500 years. And look at this. You, if you're watching from Malaysia, you might not know what a pine cone is. Because I don't think we have pine cones here. I don't think I've ever seen one. 
but maybe. Uh, anyway, they're quite common in the U.S., at least in the rural areas. And uh, this absolutely incredible 22-inch long pine cone. Wow. All right. And uh, before we get into our book tonight, I wanted to share something from a friend of mine. Uh, we are reading A Christmas Carol from Charles Dickens, the original version of A Christmas Carol, first published back in the mid-1800s. And a dear friend of mine and a former colleague of mine, uh, Dick Trahune, uh, posted this. Uh, it's a public post. So I'm not giving anyway any trade secrets. There's uh, Dick. And uh, it, this, he says, who's ready for opening night of A Christmas Carol at the Lincoln Community Playhouse? This guy. That's uh, Dick Trahune. And he and I used to work together at uh, WSNG in Torrington, Connecticut. Great guy, great talent, an amazing actor. And if I'm not mistaken, this is a one-man show. I'm pretty sure I saw him post something else about this, where he said it's a he plays Scrooge. And uh, I'm, I'm fairly certain it is a one-man show. Um, again, it's at the Lincoln Community Playhouse. So if you are in that area... I encourage you, please. Now, obviously, if you're in other parts of the world or other parts of the U.S., you wouldn't be able to, uh, to to go. But by all means, if you're in that area and you happen to be listening to the show, uh, do me a favor and check out this amazing man and his incredible show of A Christmas Carol at the Lincoln Community Playhouse. And look at this. Look at that. Look at that. Look at the outfit. So when I start reading our Christmas Carol here, the original Dickens Christmas Carol. You can imagine this guy as, uh, as Ebenezer Scrooge. So yeah, good luck and break a leg, Dick. Uh, that, is, that is fantastic. Great to see you again after uh, many, many years, my friend. It has been a very long time. All right, that having been said, it is time. It is time to head over and open up our book. We got through the second chapter, which was the first spirit, the spirit of Christmas past. And now we are going to head into what they call Stav 3, or Chapter 3, the second of the three spirits. Awakening. In the middle of a prodigiously tough snore, and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time, for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention. But finding that he turned uncomfortably cold when he began to wonder which of his curtains this new specter would draw back, he put them every one aside with his own hands and, laying down again, established a sharp lookout all around the bed. For he wished to challenge the spirit on the moment of its appearance, 
and he did not wish to be taken by surprise and made nervous. Gentlemen of the free and easy sort who plume themselves on being acquainted with a move or two and being usually equal to the time of day express the wide range of their capacity for adventure by observing that they are good for anything from pitch and toss to manslaughter, between which opposites extremes, no doubt, there lies a tolerably wide and comprehensive range of subjects, without venturing for Scrooge quite as heartily as this. I don't mind calling on you to believe that he was ready for a good broad field of strange appearances, and that nothing between a baby and a rhinoceros would have astonished him very much. Now, being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing, and consequently, when the bell struck one, no shape appeared. He was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes, ten minutes, a quarter of an hour went by, and yet nothing came. All this time he lay upon his bed, the very core and center of a blaze of ruddy light which streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour and which, being only light, was more alarming than a dozen ghosts, as he was powerless to make out what it meant, or would be at, and was sometimes apprehensive that he might be at that very moment an interesting case of spontaneous combustion, without having the consolation of knowing it. At last, however, he began to think, as you or I would have thought at first, for it is always the person not in the predicament who knows what ought to have been done in it, and would unquestionably have done it too. At last, I say, he began to think that the source and secret of this ghostly light might be in the adjoining room, from whence on further tracing it, it seemed to shine. The idea taking full possession of his mind, he got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. The moment Scrooge's hand was on the lock, a strange voice called him by his name and bade him enter, and he obeyed. It was his own room. There was no doubt about that but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were hung with living green and looked like a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly and mistletoe and ivy reflected back the light, as if so many tiny little mirrors had been scattered there, and such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney that dull petrifaction of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time or Marley's or for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped up on long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, 
cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up, high up, to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. "'Come in!' exclaimed the ghost. "'Come in, and know me better, man!' Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before the spirit. He was not the dogged Scrooge he had been, and through the spirit's eyes were clear and kind he did not like to meet them. "'I am the ghost of Christmas present,' said the spirit. "'Look upon me!' Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple deep green robe, or mantle, bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any article. Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath, set there and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face. Its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. Girded round its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it, and the ancient sheath was eaten up with rust. "'You have never seen the like of me before!' exclaimed the spirit. Uh, "'Never!' Scrooge made answer to it. "'Have never walked forth with the younger members of my family, "'meaning, for I am very young, "'my elder brothers born in these later years,' pursued the phantom. "'I don't think I have,' said Scrooge. "'I... I I'm afraid I've not. Uh, have you many brothers, spirit? <laughs> More than eight hundred, said the ghost. Oh, a, a tremendous family to provide for, muttered Scrooge. The ghost of Christmas present rose. Spirit, said Scrooge submissively, conduct me where you will. I, I went forth last night on compulsion, and I, I learned a lesson which is working now. "'Tonight you have ought to teach me. Let me profit by it.' "'Touch my robe.' Scrooge did as he was told and held it fast. Holly, mistletoe, red berries, ivy, turkey, geese, game, poultry, brawn, meat, pigs, sausage, oyster, pies, pudding, fruit, punch, all vanished instantly. And so did the room, the fire the ruddy glow, the hour of night, and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning. Where, for the weather was severe, the people made a rough but brisk and not unpleasant kind of music in scraping the snow from the pavement in front of their dwellings and from the tops of their houses. 
whence it was mad delight to the boys to see it come plumbing down to the road below and splitting into artificial little snowstorms. The house fronts looked black enough and the windows blacker, contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs, with the dirtier snow upon the ground, which last deposit had been ploughed up in deep furrows by the heavy wheels of carts and wagons, furrows that crossed and recrossed each other hundreds of times where the great streets branched off, made intricate channels hard to trace in the thick yellow mud and icy water. The sky was glooming and the shortest streets were choked up with a dingy mist. Half thawed, half frozen, whose heavier particles descended in a shower of sooty atoms, as if all the chimneys in Great Britain had by one consent caught fire and were blazing away to their heart's content. There was nothing very cheerful in the climate or in the town, and yet there was an air of cheerfulness abroad with the clearest summer air and brightest summer sun might have endeavored to diffuse in vain. For the people who were shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another from the parapets and now and then exchanging a fastidious snowball. Better-natured missile far than many a worldly jest laughing heartily if it went right and not less heartily if it went wrong. The poulterers' shops were still half open and the fruiterers were radiant in their glory. There were great round pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the streets in their apoplectic opulence. There were ruddy, brown-faced, girth, broad-girthed Spanish onions, shining in the fatness of their growth like Spanish friars, and winking from their shelves in wanton shyness at the girls as they went by, and glancing demurely at the hung-up mistletoe. There were pears and apples clustered in high, blooming pyramids, Bunches of grapes made in the shopkeeper's benevolence to dangle from conspicuous-looking hooks that people's mouths might water gratis as they passed. There were piles of filberts, mossy and brown, recalling in their fragrance, ancient walks among the woods and pleasant shufflings ankle-deep through the withered leaves. There were Norfolk biffins, squab and swarthy, setting off the yellow of the oranges and lemons, and in the great compactness of their juicy persons, urgently entreating and beseeching to be carried home in paper bags and eaten after dinner. The very gold and silver fish set forth among those choice fruits in a bowl, though members of a dull and stagnant blooded race, appeared to know there was something going on, and to a fish went gasping round and round in their little world in slow, passionless excitement. The grocers, oh, the grocers, nearly closed, with perhaps two shutters down or one, but through those gaps, such glimpses. It was not alone that the scales descended on the counter made a merry sound, or that the twine and roller parted company so briskly, 
or that the canisters were rattling up and down like juggling tricks, or even that the blended scents of tea and coffee were so grateful to the nose, or that the raisins were so plentiful and rare, the almonds so extremely white, the sticks of cinnamon so long and straight, the other spices so delicious, the candied fruits so caked and spotted with molten sugar, as to make the coldest lookers-on feel faint, and subsequently bilious. Nor was it that the figs were moist and pulpy, or that the French plums blushed in modest tartness from their highly decorative boxes, or that everything was good to eat and in its Christmas dress. But the customers were all so hurried and so eager in the hopeful promise of the day, that they tumbled up against each other at the door, crashing their wicker baskets wildly, and left their purchases upon the counter, and came running back to fetch them, and committed hundreds of the like mistakes in the best humor possible, while the grocer and his people were so frank and fresh that the polished hearts with which they fastened their aprons might have been their own, worn outside for general inspection and for Christmas dolls to pick at if they choose. But soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. And at the same time there emerged from scores of by-streets, lanes, and nameless turnings innumerable people, carrying their dinners to the baker's shops. The sight of these poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge behind him in a baker's doorway, and, taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on the diners from his torch. And it was a very uncommon kind of torch, for once or twice... When there were angry words between some dinner carriers who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humor was restored directly, for they said it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day, and so it was. God love, so it was. As the time the bells ceased, the bakers were shut up, and yet there was a general shadowing forth of all these diners and progress of their cooking in the thawed blotch of wet above each baker's oven, where the pavement smoked as if its stones were cooking too. There was a peculiar flavor in what you sprinkle from your torch, asked Scrooge. There is my own. What would it apply to any kind of diner on this day? asked Scrooge. To any kindly given, to a poor one most. Why to a poor one most? asked Scrooge. Because it needs it most. Spirit, Scrooge said after a moment's thought. I wonder you of... Of all the beings in the many worlds around us who desire to cramp these people's opportunities of innocent enjoyment, I, cried the spirit, 
You would deprive them of their means of dining every seventh day, often the only day on which they can be said to dine at all, said Scrooge, wouldn't you? I, cried the spirit, you seek to close these places on the seventh day, said Scrooge, and it comes to the same thing. I seek exclaimed the spirit. Um, forgive me if I'm wrong. It, it's been done in your name, or, or at least in that of your family, said Scrooge. There are some upon this earth of yours, returned the spirit, who lay claim to know us, and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill will, hatred, envy, bigotry and selfishness in our name, who are as strange to us and all our kith and kin as if they had never lived. Remember that and charge their doings on themselves, not us. Scrooge promised that he would, and they went on invisible, as they had been before, into the suburbs of the town, it was a remarkable quality of the ghost which Scrooge had observed at the baker's that notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully and like a supernatural creature as it was possible he could have done in any lofty hall. And perhaps it was the pleasure of the good spirit had in showing off his power or else it was his own kind, generous, hearty nature, and his sympathy with all poor men, that led him straight to Scrooge's clerks. For there he went, and took Scrooge with him, holding to his robe, and on the threshold of the door, the spirit smiled, and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with a sprinkling of his torch. Think of that. Bob had but 15 bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but 15 copies of his Christian name. And yet, the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-room house. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons which were cheap and made a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes. And getting the corners of his monstrous shirt collar, Bob's private property conferred upon his son and heir in honor of the day into his mouth, rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired, and yearned to show his linen in the fashionable parks. And now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the bakers they had smelled the goose and known it for their own, and basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion, these young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies. 
while he, not proud, although his collar nearly choked him, blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. "'What has ever gotten your precious father, then?' said Mrs. Cratchit. "'And your brother Tiny Tim. And Martha wasn't as late last Christmas Day by half an hour.' "'Here's Martha, mother,' said a girl, appearing as she spoke. "'Here's Martha, mother,' cried the two young Cratchits. "'Hurrah! There's such a goose, Martha!' "'Why, bless your hearts alive, my dear, how late you are,' said Mrs. Cratchit, kissing her a dozen times and taking off her shawl and bonnet for her with officious zeal. We had a great deal of work to finish up last night, replied the girl, and had to clear away this morning, mother. Well, never mind, so long as you are come, said Mrs. Cratchit. Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm, Lord bless ye. No, no, father's coming, cried the two young Cratchits, who were everywhere at once. Hide, Martha, hide. So Martha hid herself, and... In came little Bob, the father, with at least three feet of comforter, exclusive of the fringe, hanging down before him, and his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulders. Alas, for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch, and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. "'Why, where's our Martha?' cried Bob Cratchit, looking round. Not coming, said Mrs. Cratchit. Not coming, said Bob, with a sudden declination in his high spirits, for he'd been Tim's blood horse all the way from church, and had come home rampant. Not coming upon Christmas Day. Oh, Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, if it were even only a joke, so she came out prematurely from hiding behind the closet door and ran into his arms, while the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim and bore him off into the wash house that he might hear the pudding singing in the copper. And how did little Tim behave? asked Mrs. Cratchit when she'd rallied Bob on his credulity and Bob had hugged his daughter to his heart's content. As good as gold, said Bob, and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful, sitting by himself so much, and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me, coming home, that he hoped that people saw him in the church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this, and trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and hearty. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor, and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool beside the fire, while Bob, turning up his cuffs as if, poor fellow, they were capable of being made more shabby, compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons and stirred it round and round, and put it on the hob to simmer. Master Peter and the two ubiquitous young Cratchits went on to fetch the goose, 
with which they returned in high procession. Such a bustle ensued that you might have thought a goose the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon. To watch a black swan was a matter of course, and in truth it was something very like that in the house. Mrs. Cratchit made the gravy ready beforehand in a little saucepan, hissing hot. Master Peter mashed the potatoes with incredible vigor. Mrs. Belinda sweetened up the applesauce. Martha dusted the hot plates. Bob took Tiny Tim beside him in a tiny corner at the table. The two young Cratchits set chairs for everybody, not forgetting themselves, and mounting guard upon their post, cramped spoons into their mouths, lest they should shriek for goose before their turn came to be helped. At last the dishes were set on and grace was said. It was succeeded by a breathless pause, as Mrs. Cratchit, looking slowly all along the carving knife, prepared to plunge it into the breast. But when she did, and when the long-expected gush of stuffing issued forth, one murmur of delight arose all round the board, and even Tiny Tim, excited by the two young Cratchits, beat on the table with the handle of his knife and feebly cried, Hurrah! There was never such a goose. Bob said he didn't believe there was ever such a goose cooked. Its tenderness and flavor... Size and cheapness were the themes of universal admiration. Eked out by applesauce and mashed potatoes, it was a sufficient dinner for the whole family indeed. As Mrs. Cratchit said with great delight, surveying one small atom of a bone upon the dish, they hadn't ate it all at last. Yet every one had had enough and the young Cratchits in particular were steeped in sage and onion to the eyebrows. But now the plates being changed by Ms. Belinda, Mrs. Cratchit left the room alone and nervous to bear witness, to take the pudding up and bring it in. Suppose it should not be enough. Suppose it should break in turning out. Suppose somebody should have gotten over the wall in the backyard and stolen it. While the Mary were with the goose, a supposition at which the two young Cratchits became livid. All sorts of horrors were supposed. Hello, a great deal of steam. The pudding was out of the copper. A smell like a washing day. That was the cloth. A smell like an eating house and a pastry cook's next door to each other, with a laundress's next door to that. That was the pudding. In half a minute, Mrs. Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly, with the pudding, like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half a quartern of ignited brandy, and bed light with Christmas holly stuck in the top. Oh, a wonderful pudding, Bob Cratchit said, and calmly, too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. Mrs. Cratchit said that now the weight was off her mind. She would confess she had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought it was at all a small pudding for a large family. 
It would have been flat heresy to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. At last, the dinner was all done. The cloth was cleared, the hearth swept, the fire made up, the compound and the jug being tasted and considered perfect. Apples and oranges put upon the table and a shovel full of chestnuts on the fire. Then all the Cratchit family drew round the hearth in which Bob Cratchit called a circle, meaning half a one. And at Bob Cratchit's elbow stood the family display of glass, two tumblers and a custard cup without a handle. They held the hot stuff from the jug, however, as well as golden goblets would have done, and Bob served it out with beaming looks while chestnuts in the fire sputtered and crackled noisily. And then Bob proposed, A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. Which all the family echoed, God bless us, everyone, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side upon the little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, said Scrooge with an interest he'd never felt before. Tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat, replied the ghost, in the poor chimney corner, and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, a child will die. No, no, said Scrooge. Oh, no, kind spirit. Say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race, returned the ghost, will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better to do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit, and was overcome with penitence and grief. Man, said the ghost, if man you be in heart, not adamant, forbear that wicked can't until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live? What men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh, God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Scrooge bent before the ghost's rebuke and trembling cast his eyes upon the ground. But he raised them speedily upon hearing his own name. Mr. Scrooge, said Bob, I'll give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast. The founder of the feast indeed, cried Mrs. Cratchit, reddening. 
I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon, and I'd hope he'd have a good appetite for it. My dear, said Bob, the children, Christmas Day. I'll drink to his health for your sake and the days, said Mrs. Cratchit. Not for his. Long life to him. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and very happy, I've no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. It was the first of their proceedings, which had no heartiness in it. Tiny Tim drank it last of all, but he didn't care twopence for it. Scrooge was the ogre of the family. The mention of his name cast dark shadows on the party, which was not dispelled for a full five minutes. After it had passed away, they were ten times merrier than before. From the mere relief of Scrooge, the baleful being done with, Bob Cratchit told them how he's had a situation in his eye for Master Peter, which would bring in, if obtained, full five and sixpence weekly. The two young Cratchits laughed tremendously at the idea of Peter being a man of business, and Peter looked him thoughtfully at the fire from between his collars as if he were delivering what particular investments he should favor when he came into the receipt of that bewildering income. Martha, who was a poor apprentice at a milliner's, then told them what kind of work she had to do and how many hours she worked in a stretch, and how she meant to lie abed tomorrow morning for a good long rest, tomorrow being a holiday she passed at home, and how she'd been a countess and lord some days before, and how the lord was much about as tall as Peter, at which Peter pulled up his collars so high that you couldn't have seen his head if you'd been there. All this time the chestnuts and the jug went round and round, and by and by they had a long song about a lost child traveling in the snow. From Tiny Tim, who had a plaintive little voice, and sang it very well indeed. There was nothing of high mark in this. They were not a handsome family. They were not well dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty, and Peter might have known, and very likely did, the inside of a pawnbroker's. But they were happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time, and when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eyes upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim, until the last. And that's the first part of the third chapter, The Ghost of Christmas Present. We will continue with that on our next stream on Monday night. All right. Wow. We went well over an hour again tonight. <laughs> Thanks for hanging with us. Hope you're enjoying the book, A Christmas Carol. We should finish it just about Christmas, which is just a little bit over four weeks from now. Not that far away. All right, friends. Thanks so much for popping by. Thanks for spending a little time with me tonight around the planet and listening in on our podcast to subscribe, share, like, follow. 
hit all those buttons. Thank you much. I'll see you on Monday night, 10 o'clock Malaysian time. Until then, I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants. Good night. Yeah. Yeah.